Please go ahead and have a seat, and it is with great excitement I ask you to open your Bibles here this evening and turn with me to Matthew chapter 17 from the time that we open the doors on Sunday here in this building till right now. We have already had four times to come together to worship the Lord and to hear from His Word. So we are making the most of the space. At least we're off to a good start. If you have been here at all three of these nights that we have done, Tuesday, Wednesday, and now Thursday, will you just raise your hand right now? Look at these marathon runners right here. That's awesome. Thank you so much. You know, I should be exhausted. We've been doing this all week. How come I feel so excited? How come I feel alive? What's going on around here? Amen. Amen. Whoa, you preaching right over here in the front row. Hey, you know what I've noticed here at this church is people stay around here, it seems like for an hour after the service and talk to each other. Have you seen that happen in here at this church too? People are talking to each other and I'm excited to share with you that this week I have heard of five different people and I've gotten to talk to each one of them who have said that they have put their faith in Jesus Christ since we started meeting here in this building. And I'm saying that's what we're here to do. Right? That's what we're here to do. Now, I, I came here, I moved here, moved my family here to Huntington Beach, and I'm planting a church here that I, I'm expecting to outlive me. That's the thing I'm praying for. I want to be here for decades. And now we're in this building, and just to let you in, you're here on a Thursday night, you're on the deal team now, a little FY411 for you here. We signed a five-year lease on this place, all right? So at least for the next five years, we're, we're going to be gathering here in this place, and we're going to be worshiping Jesus and hearing from his word. And we have a question that we need to ask is what's going to be the tone of us as we come to gather together in Jesus' name as a church? What's going to be the tone that we're going to have? And a lot of times church is very casual. It's kind of a social event. You hear people say phrases these days like, well, I'm just going to do church, or I'm just going to go, you know, hit up a service, or I like those songs, or hey, that was a good talk you gave, pastor. I hear a lot of people say very casual language. Or when we gather here as God's people, do we come into his presence? See, Are we here not just to have a group of people, but to actually interact with the living God that reigns over heaven and earth, the one who is holy, holy, holy? holy, the one who sent his son to die on the cross for you. What kind of church do we want to be? I want to come here and I want to really go into the throne room of heaven and I want to give glory to God. And then when we open this book, I want it to be as if God himself is now speaking and addressing his people. That's the kind of church I want to have. And I hope that's why you're here because you want to have that church as well. So what is it like to go into God's presence? Well, Matthew 17 is going to show us because here we see Jesus in all of his glory. So we're going to use this text tonight. And this is really the climax of everything we've been studying all week. This text tonight is going to set the tone for how you and I are going to worship Jesus in this place for at least the next five years. Lord willing, let's read it together. Matthew 17, verse 1. Follow along with me. I'm going to read all the way to verse 8. It says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James... And John, his brother, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses 
and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, this is a famous account in Scripture. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all the synoptic Gospels. Jesus goes through a metamorphosis right in front of the three closest disciples. He goes from putting on flesh from his human form, and he is revealed in his glory to these three men. And what a beautiful phrase here at the end. In verse 8, it says, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, I know literally that saying that Moses and Elijah weren't there, and God the Father wasn't there in the cloud anymore, and they looked up, and it was just Jesus again. But poetically, man, isn't that what we want to see happen at our church? Don't we want to see be people who see Jesus and him only? Isn't that what we've been talking about all week, right? We want to see him as the Christ, as the Lord. We want our eyes to be opened to worship him with all of our hearts. We want to seek him first, right? And have nothing else rival in our hearts. You could write down Psalm 27, verse 4 as a cross-reference here to verse 8 where David says, One thing I have desired of the Lord, and that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David says, a man after God's own heart, if there's one thing I want, it's to see God every day of my life. That's what I want to see. I want to see him in all of his beauty. I want to inquire. I want to meditate. I want to learn on who he is. You know, the way I like to say it personally is I like to say it, seek Jesus first and nothing else second. Because I figure something that's second place in your life, second place is just trying to get first place. That's all second place is doing, right? Second place is the first loser, right? Well, I don't even want there to be a competition in my heart, in my life. I want to be so focused on Jesus Christ and him only, so in awe of his glory, so in love with him and what he has done for me, that there's no room in my heart for anything but Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Is anybody with me here tonight? Are we still? Now this passage is going to show us Jesus in all of his glory. And we're going to break it down literally but poetically, figuratively. That's where we want to get right there. We want to be in love with Jesus Christ and longing to see him. You'll notice as we work our way through, it's going to say, behold, behold, behold. It's trying to get you to look and see Jesus in his glory. Now look at how it starts. Chapter 17, verse 1. It says, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother. Okay, now, after six days is an interesting transition here. I know in our Bibles, it looks like we're on to something new because we're into chapter 17, and so it feels like we left chapter 16, but when it starts out and after six days, that's actually connecting it with what happened before. 
It's not like, hey, let me tell you a whole different account now. No, this is continuing. I mean, I, I don't know what the significance of six days specifically is, but it's saying after Jesus had this conversation with his disciples that we've been looking at in chapter 16, then they went and did chapter 17. So that's why we put all of these messages together in a unit. We think that what starts here in verse 13 of chapter 16, just look back earlier. We went over this on Sunday if you were here. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples this question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And so we begin this dialogue here between Jesus and his disciples with the spokesperson, Peter, always kind of answering Jesus on the disciples' behalf. And this starts in chapter 16, verse 13, and it goes to the end of that chapter. And then it says in chapter 17, after six days, so in response to this conversation that Jesus was having with his disciples. So let's just review, where is Caesarea Philippi? We've got our map of Israel up here on the screen. And we learned, if you were here on Sunday, we learned that Israel can be broken into some different parts. We've got the southern part of Israel, known as Judah, where Jerusalem is, okay? That's the main hub of Israel. But then we've also got the northern part here of Israel, around the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus is feeding the 5,000. That's where he grew up in Nazareth, Capernaum. It's one of the main cities. There's a lot of action in the Gospels around this sea. And then we realize that Caesarea Philippi, it's not in the south, it's not in the north, it's way north, okay? So Jesus is taking his disciples away to have this intimate, private conversation with them. Now look at chapter 17 with me again. After six days of this intimate, private retreat conversation they're having, Jesus and his disciples, now he trims it down from 12 even to just three, Peter, James, and John. And he led them up a high mountain by themselves. Now we could debate for the rest of the night which high mountain it is, but the truth is it doesn't tell us, okay? But we were way up north. I mean, now, look, we're way up high. We don't even know where they went, okay? So now this is the ultimate, I'm going to take now just the three of you and we're going to go somewhere and we're going to be by ourselves and the only place to do that, I guess, is way up this high mountain. And there, all of a sudden, Jesus goes from the God-man and he reveals his glory to these three men. Now, this is an absolutely fascinating account. I mean, look at the description in verse 2. He was transfigured. You've heard of the process of metamorphosis. That's the idea here. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And that might remind you of a description of Jesus that we're going to get to later in Revelation chapter 1. Now, what's really interesting is verse 3. Behold, look at this. It's always trying to get you to look here. There appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So we have Jesus now in all of his glory, and within that shining radiance of his glory, here come Moses and Elijah. Now I want to kind of give you a couple of different reasons why Moses and Elijah might be showing up. It's very interesting, very mysterious, but one thing that Moses and Elijah have in common is they're two of the few people uh, maybe the two only ones in the scripture that have actually been on a mountain and seen the glory of God before. 
See, this is now we're starting to see that by Jesus taking his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountain and showing them the glory, well, that's going to be familiar if you're a student of the Bible. If you're a Jew at this time, you're going to realize, oh, hey, going up on the mountain to see the glory of God, yeah, that's where Moses has been. That's where Elijah has been. These are two of the men who had the privilege of while they were still alive on this planet, getting a glimpse of God's glory revealed to them. And we have these accounts. Go to Exodus chapter 20. And let us see both of these men interacting with the glory of God. Turn there with me to Exodus chapter 20. And I want you to start thinking about putting yourself in Moses' sandals or, or in, uh, putting yourself in Elijah's place. What would it be like for you to see the glory of God? What would be your personal response? See, it's powerful whenever anyone encounters the glory of God. Here in Exodus chapter 20, God is going to give his Ten Commandments to the people, and the people gather around the mountain, Mount Sinai, where they're going to hear from God. Here's God interacting with people, the entire nation of Israel. Uh, Go past the Ten Commandments to verse 18 of Exodus 20. Look at what happens here. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain is smoking, okay? So when God's presence comes down on this mountain, man, there is something going on there. And the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, hey, Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. Do not let God speak to us Lest we, what do they say there? Lest we what? I don't even want it. I don't even want God talking to me because I'm so intimidated. I'm so scared. I don't even want to hear from him. Hey, Moses, why don't you go talk to him and then just tell us what he says because we can't handle being in the presence of God. It feels like we are going to die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be here before you that you may not sin. Interesting comment that Moses makes. Hey, don't be afraid because God wants to make you really afraid. Did you catch that right there? Hey, don't freak out about God's presence on the mountain because what he really wants you to do is to be afraid of him so that you will not sin. That's really what he wants to show you. And so Moses, we know, if you know the story, verse 21, the people, they back away. They stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And if you've seen the the Ten Commandments uh, with Charlton Heston, or perhaps you've seen the animated Prince of Egypt, right? Or maybe you saw this terrible movie that just came out called Exodus. Did anybody sit through that movie in the movie theater? That it was it was brutal. Some of us went to see it. It was not biblical. It, it, it was it wasn't even a good movie. It was just terrible. And so um, maybe you know this story. This is a familiar story. Moses goes up there. He gets the two tablets of stone. He comes back down. And what are the people doing when Moses comes back down from the mountain? Are they waiting to hear from God? No, they've set up a golden calf that they're worshiping. And God is angry with the people. And so he, now Moses and God have a very fascinating conversation. Turn over to chapter 33 where now Moses is going to plead to God on behalf of the people because God's basically ready to wipe the people out because they wouldn't listen to him. They wouldn't worship him. And so Moses jumps in, in Exodus 33, look at verse 12. He's going to intercede on behalf of the people. And Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people. 
but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Hey, you're telling me now to go and lead these people, and you don't want to do it. But who's going to come with me, God? You have said I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, this nation is your people. And so now God says, okay, fine, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses, that's not enough for Moses. Look at verse 15. Moses said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Hey, if you're not coming, then I don't want to go. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Hey, I thought the whole point of you delivering us from Egypt was that you would be our God. We would be your people. We would have a relationship with you. And the Lord said to Moses, okay, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. God concedes, all right. I will continue to go with you as my people. God's ready to abandon the people. Moses says, how can we go without you? He says, I'll send my presence. Moses says, your presence is not enough. I want you. And God says, okay, Moses, for you, I will go with you. And Moses doesn't stop there. Look at verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. I mean, what a bold statement for a man to make to God. God, I want to see you. I want to see who you really are. I don't just want your presence. I don't just want to know a little bit about you. I want to be overwhelmed with your glory. Show me who you are. Now, God makes it very clear to Moses that no man can see his glory and live. But he sets up this deal. He hides Moses in the rock, and he gives Moses a glimpse of his backside, and he covers Moses with his hand. Turn on over to chapter 34, and, and, and here we see that God passes before Moses. Look at verse 5 of Exodus 34. This is a man seeing God for the, for the first time here in the fullness of his glory. It says the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. And he, the Lord introduces himself to Moses. Look at this description. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of people God wants to forgive and save, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshiped. One thing you're going to notice in all of these accounts where people see the glory of God is they end up on their face. That's what you're going to see. Somebody who gets a glimpse of the glory of God, a person in our, in our human body as it is right now, the only reaction that you see in the scripture to somebody seeing the glory of God is to fall and it's like they hit their face. You know, we had a guy who's here tonight, a guy named John, and he came by one day, and he cleaned the windows outside here in front of our church. And I was like, man, we got to do this for the Lord. We need to get these windows cleaner than they have ever been. And he spent hours out there cleaning these windows. And uh, the first service that we had, people were like, see you later, and they were leaving our church, and, like, they walked right into these windows. 
And if you go out there, you can still see like interesting like little spots on the windows about face height, you know, where somebody's schnoz just smacked right into the glass of the window. So, John, thank you for cleaning those windows. Great job, man. I mean, we got some clean windows at this church, right? It's like, it's like the person was just expecting to take another step, and bam, their face hits the window, and it was pretty awkward. I saw one person do it, right? It was like, well, I hope they come back to our church after that, you know? But the truth is, if we uphold the glory of God at this church, you know what it's going to be like? Bam, it's going to hit people in the face. It's going to be like they're going to fall face down, and they're going to worship. Like, you can't handle the glory of God. You can't understand the glory of God. You can't get used to it. You can't get comfortable with it. Moses, he gets an introduction of God, a God who is not just love and forgiveness, although clearly he is in that description, but a God of holiness and justice here too. I mean, this description is very clear. He's full of steadfast love and truth is what it says. He wants to forgive thousands, but hey, nobody's getting away with it. That's what it says here. That's how God introduces himself. That's why it's so important to us here at Compass Bible Church that we will always strive to have a high view of God. We will see God as someone other than us, someone above us, someone who doesn't just come down on our level and and love us, but he calls us to live on his level. He says, be holy as I am holy. And we will always treat God with fear and reverence here at this church as he deserves. And when some people come in here, and they really get a glimpse of who God is, you're going to see it happen. It might not happen in their physical body, but it'll happen in their heart. They're going to fall face down when they meet the glory of God. That's what people do. It's overwhelming. And Moses, he was bold enough to say, show me your glory, and then he sees the glory of God, and he gets down and he worships. And then he comes down the mountain, and what's going on with Moses' face? His face is shining His face has got the Shekinah glory radiating off of it. They have to put a veil over Moses' face because he's freaking the kids out because he's mirroring the glory of God. He's reflecting it around. Now go to 1 Kings 19. Turn with me to 1 Kings 19, and let's see what happens when this guy Elijah gets on a mountain and meets with God. Elijah, he's always held up kind of as the ultimate prophet of Israel. Elijah, a man who didn't die, God just took him. Man, there there is nothing cooler than that, right? Can you imagine being in heaven for all of eternity? Hey, how did you die? I didn't. I mean, that would be a great, I want to be one of those people. That's why I pray for the rapture, right? I want to, me, you know, Moses, Enoch, Elijah, I mean, well, Moses died, Enoch, Elijah, and then me. It's Janet right there. Yeah, we never died. I mean, that's a good club to be in. This guy, he got picked up in a chariot of fire in a whirlwind and taken up into heaven. I think he knows a little bit about the glory of the Lord. So why is this guy up there with Jesus Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration? Well, we got to go back to the Old Testament to find the answer. And look with me here at 1 Kings 19, verse 9. Elijah has just done a great thing. He has killed some of the prophets of Baal, the idol that the people of Israel are worshiping. He's won a great victory for the Lord, but after the victory, he kind of retreats, and he goes away, and he hides in a cave. And it says here in 1 Kings 19, verse 9, there he came to a cave, and he he lived in it. He lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing in this cave? And he said... 
I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, they've thrown down your altars, and they've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now doesn't that just sound like people at church, right? Doesn't that just sound like the holy huddle that gathers at church? That sounds to me like people who go to Sunday school, you know? The Bible nerds right there. Why are you hiding in a cave? Well, let me tell you why I'm in a cave. Because I still worship God, and everybody else, they don't worship God anymore. In fact, they want to kill people like me. The world today is so against people like me. So I have come over to this cave to keep this holiness of mine to myself. I mean, that's basically what he's saying right here. I mean, this is a very small holy huddle here, one person. They might kill me. They might kill me, so I'm going to come and, and hide my light in a, in, a, in a cave here where no one can see it, right? Well, that's not the right answer. Verse 11, and he said, go out and stand on the mount. Go stand on the mountain before the Lord. You need to get a glimpse here. And behold, the Lord passed by. So here's a guy, Elijah, and the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, see? And he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came to him a voice, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he gives his same answer. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They're not doing what you told them to do, God. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, I'm your guy, God. I'm the only one left. And they're seeking my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mahaloa. It sounds like you're saying Mahalo there, but I know that's not what it is. Abel Mahaloa, you shall, hard to say. You shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now, that might sound very cryptic with some complicated names there, but God says, what are you doing hiding in a cave? Here's what I want you to do. Appoint this guy to be king, and appoint this guy to be king, and make this guy prophet after you. And if we were to continue reading through 1 Kings, you know what happens by the time those guys become king and Elisha becomes the prophet? They kill every single prophet of Baal, or Baal, however you want to say it. They kill every single one of those prophets, and Baal worship, which Elijah is saying he's the only guy that's not worshiping Baal, that's why he's hiding in the cave, it's eradicated from the nation of Israel. It goes from Elijah saying everybody's worshiping Baal to no one worshiping Baal just by those three guys getting appointed. And God says, oh, and by the way, you, you're the only one that's left. I have 7,000 who have never bowed the knee to Baal. They've never kissed him. They've never worshiped that idol. I've got 7,000 people, Elijah, the remnant who are still worshiping me. So stop having a pity party in a cave and come and see my glory. And look what I'm going to do in Israel. 
God is at work. We think of Moses. We think it's very demonstrable what God is doing, leading the entire nation. Here it feels like God's absent from the nation, and yet he lets Elijah know he has a plan that he is accomplishing, and he is going to defeat Baal, and he's going to eliminate it from the nation of the people of Israel. Here's two men who have seen the glory of the Lord on a mountain, and now they're with Jesus on a mountain, and they're all seeing the glory of the Lord. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, wouldn't it be nice if we could see the glory of the Lord here? No, actually, it would freak us out of our living minds if we could see the glory of the Lord. We're just going to come here into the presence of the Lord. Really, that's probably all we can handle. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12, where it talks about what we're going to do as God's people in the new covenant time. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. It says Jesus is better than the way they had it in the Old Testament. It's better to have Jesus in the New Testament, the new covenant, And it summarizes, you're not going to go up to one of those holy mountains of the Old Testament. It says it here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. This is the attitude that we want to have when we come into God's presence to worship him in his glory. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 18. It says, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. That's the mountains that we saw there with Moses and Elijah. No, the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. We just read about that, Exodus 20. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses even said, I tremble with fear. No, but you, see, talking to people like us in the new covenant, you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the city of the living God. You're coming to the heavenly Jerusalem. When we come to worship God, there are innumerable angels and festal gathering and the assembly of the firstborn who are already enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, there he is at the right hand, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And at this time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. We're talking about the judgment of the world, the destruction of the world as we know it. That is, the things that have been made will be unmade in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Hey, when you worship, you don't go to a mountain, a physical place. No, you come into the holy mountain. You come into the presence of God. You better listen to what he says to you because there's going to come a time when God will unmake the creation that he has made. And so here's the punchline, verse 28, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship. What does acceptable worship look like? With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. I wonder how many times people come to a place like this supposedly to worship Jesus Christ and God is insulted by the way that they come to him. Do you think the Christians today are known for our reverence and our awe as we have acceptable worship of God, our consuming fire? Is that what we're known for? Point number one, let's get it down like this. We want to worship, you want to worship like you are overwhelmed 
Worship like you are overwhelmed. Worship like you're ready to fall on your face, like you're going to put a cloak over your face because you know you can't even handle the glory of God. Like he's a consuming fire, it says. Worship like you are overwhelmed with reverence and awe. Man, let us never get used to coming into this room. Feels new right now, feels exciting, feels special. Let us never get used to coming into God's presence to worship him. Let us be thinking about him in heaven, in his holiness, in his splendor. You know, I was talking about, uh, with some of our college students the other day, we were talking about the Chronicles of Narnia. I don't know, has anybody here ever read the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, right? The most famous book out of that series is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? And all of this just sounds crazy if you've never read these books, right? Um, And there's a beaver that talks. Does anybody here know Mr. Beaver, right? And there's these children that go through a wardrobe and end up in a magical world, and it's all a big allegory. It's all just meant to teach kids about the Bible, about Christianity, and there's this white witch who represents Satan and sin, and then the beaver, he's talking to these kids. And the beaver says something I can remember the first time I ever read it. He says, Aslan is on the move. Anybody ever read this before, right? Yeah, first time I was reading this book, I started reading fast after that. Who's this Aslan guy? And turns out he's a lion. Turns out the lion represents Jesus Christ. And I'm picturing this lion coming, and I'm picturing this beaver, and I'm like, this lion's going to eat this beaver. I'm, I'm thinking about this in my mind. And one of the kids asks the question that's on my mind, is he safe, one of the kids says. Is he safe, Mr. Beaver says. No, of course not. But he's good, see. Do you have a safe God? Because if you have a safe God here tonight, you don't know the real God. The real God is a consuming fire, and if you saw him with your own eyes tonight, you would end up on your face. Your body would fall out from beneath you. And you would be overwhelmed. We can't see him physically here, but it says we're coming to him in that same way. Like the people of Israel did on the mountain, we should come to him with reverence and awe because he is someone that is worthy of the utmost worship and praise. And I hope that's how we're going to worship God here. Hope we're not going to get used to it, take it casually. Hope we're not just going to be arguing with our wife or yelling at our kids in the car and then putting on our Jesus face as we get out of the, we just, all the metamorphosis going on in the parking lot at church. You know what I mean? Everybody's all of a sudden just happy and blessed. and Couldn't be better. I hope that's not how we're coming here, my friends. I hope we're coming here ready to worship a God who is other than us. And there is something a little trepidatious. There is something that kind of makes my heart beat faster as I think about coming into the presence of the holy God and beholding him in all of his glory. That's how church is supposed to be. That's what it means to worship. Go back to Matthew 17 and you'll see that Peter the ultimate spokesperson for the disciples still hasn't learned how, how to shut up. Look, look at Peter here, right? We're beholding the glory. And Moses and Elijah are here. And Peter, he just always has to say something. Isn't that what we're learning about this guy, right? I mean, he started out great. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's like, all right, I'm going to build I'm going to build the church on that right there. That sounds good. Next time he answers uh, Jesus, didn't go so well. What was, the, what was the response that time? Anybody remember? Get behind me who? Ooh, ouch. 
We went from like the rock to Satan, right? Now, Peter's seeing all of this, and he can't keep his mouth shut, right? And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, right? Now, I don't know what he's thinking. He's going to build three tabernacles. Uh, I mean, that's kind of a reference to the Old Testament there. They would have the Feast of Tabernacles where they would build tents that Peter would have been familiar with. Is he trying to act like Moses and Elijah are gods like Jesus? I mean, it's confusing what Peter says, but really there's no commentary about it. This time, we're just not even interacting with Peter. We just roll right over him, right? Because here's who's supposed to show up and speak. Sorry, Peter, it wasn't you. Verse 5, he was still speaking when behold, i.e., he was interrupted. Behold. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud. Peter, this is not your turn to talk this time. Somebody else is here to speak. And they hear from God himself. And he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And what does he say that we should do with his beloved son? What does he say? Listen to him. Okay? Now, let's put this in context. We just went away on a little retreat for at least six days, just Jesus and the disciples. Okay? Let's even review. We've got, I think we've got a slide here that we can start. Well, let's just look at what we've learned so far. First answer was that Jesus is the Christ, the Lord. We started with who Jesus is. That was on Sunday. Then we learned what Jesus is going to do. And he told them, I'm going to go, they're going to kill me, and I'm going to rise again on the third day. And they said, that'll never happen. And he said, get behind me, Satan. So we learned who Jesus was. We learned what he came to do. And then we learned what he calls us to do. If you were here last night. He calls us to deny yourself, take up your cross. You've got to say no to what you want. You've got to say yes to following Jesus. Your life becomes about him, seeking him first because you believe that he's worth it. He's better than anything this world has to offer you. And so you follow him. So you have this private retreat, and at the end of it, we take the three most innermost disciples, and we go up on a mountain, and we see Jesus in all of his glory. And what's the point of this vision of Jesus Christ? The Father comes, and he says, listen to him. See? He says, are you going to get what he just talked with you about? Like, this is, your eternal destiny depends on whether you listen to what Jesus teaches in this passage or not. Listen to him. That's the message that God wants to give. If there's one thing you should do with Jesus, he says, it's listen to him. Very interesting. And again, this goes all the way back to the Old Testament. Turn to Deuteronomy with me. You guys are here at church on a Thursday night. I figure you don't mind turning in your Bibles. Do you guys okay with turning in your Bibles? Is anybody tired of it? Let's go to Deuteronomy 18. You guys still with me? Deuteronomy chapter 18 Look at this here. That's on page 161 if you got one of our Bibles. If you don't know where Deuteronomy is, that's all right. Go to 161. And you'll see here a prophecy by Moses. So we've got, why are Moses and Elijah showing up? Well, I gave you one possible reason, because they're two men who have been on mountains and seen the glory of God. Here's another possible reason that it's Moses and Elijah who show up. Because the Old Testament is often summarized as the law and the prophets. And who wrote the law? Moses, and who's the greatest prophet of all time in the eyes of the nation of Israel? Elijah. So not only, only are they two guys who have seen the glory of God on a mountain before, but they also represent the two sections of the Old Testament. 
And Moses here is a prophet. I don't know if you think of Moses as a prophet, but the greatest thing that Moses ever did was write down the first five books of the Bible that you and I have today. And here in the fifth book, Moses makes a prophecy. Look at Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. And it says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. There's going to come a future prophet from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Man, you better listen to that prophet. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, okay, we read about that earlier on the day of assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die because I can't handle God. I can't handle hearing from him or being in his presence. And the Lord said to me, well, they are actually right in what they have spoken. So I'm going to raise up for them. They can't handle me. So I'm going to send to them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Look at this, verse 19. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. That's a threat right there. I'm going to send you a prophet at some point in the future. You guys can't handle hearing straight from me in all of my glory. So I'm going to have someone put on flesh, and I'm going to send him to you. And he's going to tell you everything from me, and you better listen to him. And here's the deal. Anybody who doesn't listen to him, I will require it of you. I will hold you accountable for not listening to this prophet that I will send. You guys tell me, who is the prophet that God is going to send? Jesus Christ. And now here's Jesus. And now we're seeing Jesus in all of his glory. And now we've got the three closest guys to Jesus. And we say to them, listen to this guy. Your entire entire eternity depends upon whether or not you listen to the prophet that God sends to you. You listen to Jesus. And here's what we've heard Jesus say. I'm going to build my church I'm going to die for your sin and rise again to give you new life. And if anyone wants to come after me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, because you're not worthy of me unless you deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow me with all of your life. And you better listen to that is what God's saying. He's showing you Jesus in all of his glory. And this is the exclamation point. Listen to what he has said. Everything matters to whether you listen to Jesus or not. Now, it's interesting that John kind of gets brought into this innermost circle. Did you, did you read that in Matthew 17? It was like, and he brought Peter's and, Peter and James, and then also John, his brother. Did you notice that little part right there? Like, John was the tag-along, right? Like, Peter and James, they were like the Gastons, right? You know, and then John, he's back here, and he's like, oh, yeah, why don't you come too, right? Well, John is actually going to end up outliving all of the rest of the disciples, And he's going to be the one who's exiled on the Isle of Patmos. And he's going to be the one who's going to get the full revelation of Jesus unveiled in all of his glory. The Jesus who's going to come riding on the clouds and every eye is going to see him. Go to Revelation chapter 1. And let's see this full unveiling that is yet future. Man, I wonder how many times John thought about that day when he got a glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ. And now here he is all the way at the end of his life, lived faithfully for Jesus, exiled on this rock in the Mediterranean Sea. They they didn't kill him. They just got rid of him and they put him out here in no man's land. I mean, on an island. So he couldn't talk to anybody. 
And guess who shows up one day? The man, not, not the man, I should say, the God that he saw on that mountain of transfiguration. Look at verse 9 of Revelation 1. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos. On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, I was being persecuted as a preacher of the word and a representative of Jesus Christ. But I was still in the spirit on the Lord's day, man. When Sunday morning came, the day of the resurrection, the first day of the week, I was worshiping. And I heard behind me a loud voice. Oh, it sounded like a trumpet. It was so loud. And it said, write what you see in a book. And I want you to send it. I know you're on an island, you're exiled, but you can still send out letters. Send it to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sarvis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me that sounded like a trumpet. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands representing the churches. And in the midst of the lampstands, there's one, and he's like a son of man. But he's different. He's clothed with a long robe. And there's a golden sash around his chest. And the hairs of his head, they're white, like white wool, like snow in his eyes. Oh, I remember the eyes. They're like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters, like the sound of a waterfall, like the terrifying, deafening sound of Niagara Falls. And in his right hand, he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face... Well, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. You can barely look at it. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and I'm the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. He gets to see Jesus in his glory once again. He falls down on his face once again. But Jesus brings him up. And Jesus says to him, I'm the living one. Who's the living one? Who's the only one that's always existed and always will exist? Who, are we, who is Jesus saying he is? He's saying, I'm God. And here's the amazing thing that I did. I died. How does God die? Well, I died. And now look at me. I'm alive forevermore. And he says something chilling. Something that we really need to think about. I have the keys to death in Hades. I decide when you die. I decide where you go when you die. That's who I am. And this is the one that you and I need to listen to. Jesus Christ, you will see him in all of his glory one day. And he will determine where you spend your eternity. See, this isn't just a vision for guys in the Bible. This isn't just the Moseses, the Elijahs, the disciples. Look at what it says here in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. It says, behold, look at this. Revelation 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth. That's all people groups, all nations. That's everybody. All tribes of the earth will wail, will mourn, will cry, will weep on account of him. Even so, amen, let it be. Let it be true. Every eye is going to see the glory of the unveiled Jesus Christ. And most people, it says here, when they see him, they will mourn. 
They will be so overwhelmed, so convicted of their sin when they see his holy glory. It will not be a happy day when Jesus comes to unmake what he has made. Are you starting to get the idea that anybody who's comfortable with Jesus... Anybody who would say to something like, Jesus is my homeboy, or Jesus is chill, or Jesus is just a friend of mine, anybody who would have this casual kind of just acceptance of Jesus, are you starting to see that that person really doesn't know who they're talking about? Are you starting to see that there's an element of Jesus that to me as a, as a sinner, that to me as a human being, is just a little bit scary? Is anybody else just a little bit scared of seeing someone who's got eyes like fire? Okay, why does the guy have a sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth? That's not, that's not a, hey, let's hang out, right? That's scary. See? If you've never been scared by Jesus, then you can't be saved by Jesus. See? You don't know who he really is. See? He is the ju- judge, and he's got the keys to your soul. And he knows how long he's going to let you live. And then when he takes life from you, he knows where he's going to put you for all of eternity. And you, my friend, are someday going to be before Jesus in all of his glory. And you will see him. Just like it says here. It's not an if you will see Jesus in his glory. It's when you will see Jesus in his glory. And I hope that you'll be one of those people who came to this church week after week, year after year, and you had always kind of had an idea of what it might look like. And you had seen it by faith. And you had worshipped him day after day, week after week, year after year. And so when you get to see the glory of Jesus Christ, man, you will be overwhelmed and you will worship him with all of your heart. I don't want you to mourn on that day. I want you to rejoice with a joy that you have never experienced in your entire life. Because this is the pinnacle, the climax. I am now in the club of those who have seen the glory of the Lord. But my concern is some of you, when you see Jesus, it will be so terrifying. And that Jesus is not going to walk up to everybody like he does with the disciples, like he does here with John in Revelation and say, hey, you don't have to be afraid. No, there are some people when they see Jesus, they will be very afraid. And the fear will never stop. See, Go to Revelation chapter 20. I mean, here's, here's what it's going to look like for some people, perhaps even some souls here in this room tonight, when they see the glory of the Lord. Look at this. It says in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, that I saw a great white throne and him, okay? That's who we're talking about. The one that was just described for us in Revelation chapter 1. The one who just said, I have the keys of death. The time that you die, your your life, your physical life. And I also have the keys of Hades, the place where people go when they die. And it says, then I saw a great white throne. And there's Jesus, and he's seated on the throne. And from his presence, read this with me, okay? From his presence, earth and sky fled away. Man, what does that mean? There's somebody sitting on a throne, and the earth and the sky went away from him. That's the destruction of the universe as we know it. That's the uncreation right there. That's 2 Peter chapter 3 when it says that there is coming a great fire and that all the elements that we know, even the heavens and the earth, they will be burned up. 
There's a judgment that is coming. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, everybody who has died, great and small. And there's just, can you picture this line of dead souls here before the throne? And the books were opened. The books of what you did in your life, the books of everything you said, thought, did. This book of your life is in heaven. And the books are opened. And then there's another book that was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Everything you've done is being written down in a book in heaven. And you're going to be judged according to it. And the sea gave up all the dead who were in it. And death and Hades gave up all the dead who who were in them. And then they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into this lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into, where does it say, my friends? Now that's scary. And I'm not saying this to try to freak anybody out. I mean, I, I, I hope that's actually what it does. So I guess I am saying it for that, okay? But the reason I'm saying this is because I care about your soul. And when you see Jesus, I want it to be the most beautiful moment. I mean, that's why we call it the rapture, the idea that someday we could just be with him in the clouds. Rapture, ecstatic joy or delight, finally getting to be with the one that I love and seeing him in all of his glory and just being so overwhelmed with worship. Sometimes you get this idea from Christians like, wait, is all we're going to do worship in heaven? Well, I think the answer to that is no, there's a lot of things we're going to do. But I also think they don't really understand who Jesus is if they think worshiping him is going to get boring at some point. See? No, you're going to be so overwhelmed. You're not going to have an option of another response when it comes to Jesus Christ. The only response that you will have is you will worship. But I'm afraid that there might be a few people here tonight that when you see Jesus, it will be this terrible moment described here. And you will realize that I heard this before. I heard it at that church, the one that's in all those industrial buildings that has bad parking. I heard it there one night. And that guy was telling me to listen, and I didn't. Listen, see. Don't let it happen to you. Point number two, listen like your life depends on it. Listen like your life depends on it. Where you're going to go to a lake of fire where you can keep reading and read about the new heavens and the new earth and a new Jerusalem that descends out of the sky, a city made with gold that goes from here to Texas. There's a beautiful, amazing city where Jesus is the light, and there's no darkness, there's no night, because Jesus' glory lights the city up. You're going to go to one of those two places when you die, depending on whether you listen to Jesus or not. So I'm here, and I'm, I'm kind of getting a little worked up, because I want to make sure that you listen. And there's some people, I'm concerned that you might leave here tonight and get in your car and drive home without worshiping Jesus Christ with your life and denying yourself and taking up your cross and following him. And I'm concerned for your soul. I don't think it's safe for some of you to drive home tonight. That's what I'm trying to say. Because if you're going to leave this room after you've heard it, some of you have been here for days, we have heard it. And if you don't listen to it, then what hope is there? 
When many people were abandoning Jesus Christ, he looked at his disciples and he said, are you guys going to leave too? And what did they say to them? Where else would we go, Jesus? You have the words of eternal life. Somebody listens to Jesus tonight, you will live forever. You cannot die. See? And what does Jesus say? Let's put the review up here on the screen. Here's what we've learned. You've got to see him as Christ. You've got to see him as Lord. You've got to see him by faith riding in on the clouds to reign, to judge. You've got to see what he did, that he would humble himself, that he would take your place on the cross. We talked about the suffering of Jesus on the cross for you bearing your sin, and then he rose again so that you could have this new life, that you could start living it right now. But it's going to cost you. You've got to deny yourself. You've got to say no to yourself. You've got to be all into following him. And then here's the climax. Someday you'll be with him in his glory, and you'll worship him, and you'll get to hear from Jesus Christ, and he will say something. Do you realize how personal it's going to be when you meet Jesus Christ? It's not just going to be this innumerable amount of people all like trying to get a glimpse of Jesus like some celebrity with all the fangirls yelling their name as they walk by. No, it says that Jesus, he's preparing a place for you right now in heaven. And he says he's going to give you a stone that has a nickname on it that's going to be between you and Jesus Christ. So personal what he's preparing for us. You're never going to be more loved than when you're there in the presence with him. And are you ready for that? Are you ready to meet Jesus Christ right now in all of his glory? It's not if you see Jesus in his glory. It's when. And I want you to be ready. God, I pray for everybody here. And I thank you so much for these, uh, these times that we've been able to have together to get into your word. But God, it all comes down to whether people are really going to listen to Jesus Christ or not. And God, I thank you for many people here who have heard the sound of Jesus calling them to deny themselves, to take up their cross, to follow. And they, they've seen his death for their sin. They've seen his resurrection that offers them hope of a new life, and they see who he is. There's people in this room, we can see Jesus in his glory, we can worship him, and we can see him on those clouds, and we long for that day when he's going to come. Oh, what joy it will be to be in the presence of Jesus Christ, but at the same time, God, our hearts break right now. For those here in this room who maybe have heard about Jesus, but their eyes haven't really seen him, God, for those in this room, they've heard the call to turn from their sin and repentance and to put their faith in Jesus and to give their life to following him and to love him and to live for him. But God, they haven't listened. They've heard, but they haven't done anything about it. God, don't let them get in their car tonight and drive away from here without surrendering their life to Jesus Christ, without getting ready to meet their maker God, I pray that even right now as the band comes and sings this song, that every single person here, that we could just keep quiet, we could keep in our seats, and we could have a time right now for the next few minutes during this song. God, that we would think about what is it going to be like when I see Jesus in all of his glory. God, help us to prepare our hearts. Help us to be ready. Help us to be overwhelmed with Jesus so that we'll never stop worshiping him. Help us to listen to Jesus so we'll never stop living for him. God, do a great work in this church. Save many people and prepare the way for Jesus' return. We pray this in his name.